So this morning we begin a new series. We're now in the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. And just a note before we get into the introduction and then read. Uh, 1 Samuel is a very different book than where we have been uh, the past little while. Uh, 1 Peter does not read like 1 Samuel. The, the whole structuring is very different. 1 Peter was a letter. When we went to 1 Timothy, it was a letter as well. But 1 Samuel is not a letter. It's a historical book. And so we're, what we're going to see is that there are much longer sections of narrative that are really complete units. And so part of that means, part of the reason I'm telling you this, is we're going to be reading larger chunks of Scripture than we've been reading over the past weeks. So I want you to be prepared for that. I want you to do your best to stay focused and pay attention. And I'll do my best to read it in a way that hopefully helps you pay attention and stay engaged. Uh, but they are stories. So how we are going to approach these passages will be ever so slightly different. So with that kind of introduction about where we're at, let's get into the sermon itself. So as I said, this is a long section of scripture that we're going to look at this morning. But this is actually one story, one narrative unit in First Samuel. And it begins and it ends in the same way, with the same character, doing the same thing, worshiping God. And so everything in between those endings that start and end is built upon that one act of worship. Everything in this story is about the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And that worship does not originate in a vacuum, but is a result of the character and the faithfulness of God to his people. The Lord works among his people. And his work organically creates praise and worship among his people. For we can never forget that the source of our faith and worship is the nature of the living God. It is who he is that should drive us most of all to worship. So because Yahweh is the Lord of life, we must worship him. So with that intro, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. There was a certain man of Raphaim Zaphim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohan, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from a city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, 
but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, and was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him only. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord." And he worshipped the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust, lifts the needy from the ash heap, to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. 
So we're going to look at two points this morning. The first point is that Yahweh is the Lord of light. So we begin this story with learning about a man named Elkanah. And this man was from the town of Ramah, but he had some connection to the town of Bethlehem since he was called an Ephrathite. And there are two things we need to remember about Elkanah as the story continues. First, in the ancient world, names typically meant a lot more than they do to us today. And Elkanah is a Hebrew name, which means God creates. And honestly, that's a strong hint at where this story is going to progress. Well, second, we see that the writer of 1 Samuel gives a genealogy to start out with in this book. Now, genealogies are important whenever they appear in Scripture. But the oddity of this specific genealogy is that we do not know who any of these people are. And so instead of showing us a connection to an important person we might know in Scripture, this genealogy may be used to show us that Elkanah was technically a nobody, at least in genealogy. And that, too, will become important by the time we finish this story. So then we learn more about Elkanah in verse 2. He has two wives. This means that Elkanah was likely a wealthy and a powerful man to be able to provide for two wives. The name of the first is Peninnah, which means fruitful, while the name of the second is Hannah, which means full of grace. Next, we see the problem of the story, which must be resolved. Hannah was barren. And it is likely that Hannah was Elkanah's first wife. But when it was obvious, that, or became obvious that she was barren, Elkanah followed what was the normal practice of the day, at least for the wealthy. And that was to take a younger second wife to perpetuate your family line. But if you know your Bible well, then you'll know that there have already been several examples of men with two wives already. And out of all of those examples, none were very good. Lamech, in Genesis 4, is an example of growing evil in the world after the fall, and he was the first man to take two wives. Abraham took Hagar as his second wife, and that only caused problems for not only his immediate family, but even down throughout the generations of Israel. Jacob married Leah and Rachel, and there was just constant turmoil as a result of their rivalry. In other words, we should know right away that trouble is coming just by the simple fact that he had two wives. And an irony of the story is the setting in which this turmoil was sparked. The time and the location of the problem was a yearly trip to Shiloh to worship God. So the Ark of the Covenant at this point in Israel's history and the tabernacle, they were in Shiloh. So these people went to Shiloh probably during a yearly feast of the Lord every year. And so Elkanah and his wife and their children, they would make a 15-mile trip north to Shiloh to worship in the presence of Yahweh of hosts. And this is the first time that that title is used for God in the Scripture. Now, often in Scripture, host refers to God's armies or his angels, but here it seems to refer to the heavenly bodies that God created. And if we remember that Elkanah's name means God creates, it seems even more likely that the host refer to the stars. Well, Elkanah, he was a very devout and a very godly man. He not only worshipped himself, but he took his family with him, and ensured that all of them had the need, the things that they needed in order to turn around and give something in worship to the Creator God. And as he gave out those portions to his family, he would give Hannah a larger portion. 
And the reason Elkanah gave Hannah a larger portion is simply because he loved her. And he loved her despite the fact that she was barren. And so the picture we see laid out so far is that Elkanah is a godly husband who loves his wives. Elkanah loved Hannah despite her barrenness, but Peninnah provoked Hannah because of her barrenness. And this is the second major contrast we see in this passage. Elkanah does not hold any sort of grudge towards Hannah for her barrenness. But Peninnah sees this problem as a means of torturing her rival. In the ancient world, childlessness was seen as a sign of God's displeasure on you. Many would have thought that Hannah was an unrighteous woman because she could not have children. And it is ironic that Elkanah was clearly a godly man and yet laid no charge against Hannah for her barrenness. He lays no charge of wickedness against her. But Peninnah clearly used Hannah's condition as a means of tormenting her. And you can really see how severe the situation was with the language used. It was not just like teasing or smart comments. Notice the language of verse 6 in particular. Hannah and Peninnah were rivals. They were competitors. They were enemies. The word provoke by itself is already bad. But Peninnah, the rival of Hannah, sought to provoke her severely. She wanted to tear Hannah down and claim supremacy as the better wife. So whether Peninnah felt the need to torment Hannah because she felt superior to Hannah since she had children, or just that she was jealous because Elkanah may have loved Hannah more, we're not really sure. But regardless, her goal was achieved, and Hannah wept, and Hannah would not eat. So Hannah's barrenness and the torment is the problem which must be resolved as we move forward in this passage. The question now is, who is going to solve this problem and how? Well, in verse 8, we see the first attempt at a solution by Elkanah. And there are a few things we can note about his attempt to console Hannah. First, he clearly understood why Hannah was upset. It is also clear that he loves his wife. His solution is to remind Hannah of his love for her. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Well, commentators have very different responses to Elkanah's consolation. Some say this is a selfish and simplistic answer from an uninterested husband. Others see Elkanah positively, but as unable to actually do anything about this situation. And honestly, I think Elkanah meant well and that he acted out of love, but that he couldn't really understand the depths of sorrow that his wife was going through. And in the end, Elkanah could not solve this problem for Hannah. And yet it seems to have had some effect since Hannah appears to have eaten and drunk and then gotten up in verse 9. We've already seen the piety of Elkanah in this passage, but Hannah also shows faith as she comes up with a solution of her own. She went to the temple in Shiloh and she poured out her heart to God. And it's very likely that her praying at the temple like this was a regular event. So unable to be consoled by her husband or to work through her problem by her own strength, she returned to the temple to pray to the only one who could actually help her in her situation. And as she poured out her heart, she made a vow to the Lord. And this vow came with really two major parts. First, she asked God to remember her. Now, to remember in the Old Testament Hebrew is not how we often use it in English. When the Old Testament saints call on God to remember, it is an action verb. God knows everything. He cannot actually forget anything or anyone. 
But to remember in the Old Testament is to take the knowledge that you have and then act upon it. So Hannah's request is that God would look at her and her situation and move to rescue her from her situation. So Hannah's solution is to take her problem to God and ask him to fix it for her. So that's the first part. The second part of her vow is that she vowed that if God gives her a son, he will be set apart to serve the Lord for his entire life. And it's really a fascinating and a rather ironic condition which Hannah places on herself. She doesn't ask for a son to parade him in front of Peninnah. There's no hint of I'll show her in this request. She asks for a son so she can turn around and give that son away right back to the one who would give it. And so we see a remarkable example of faith in Hannah's vow. But it seems from the story that people acting in faith may not have been a regular occurrence at this time. This took place during the dark days of the judges. These events probably took place just a decade after Samson's birth. It was a violent time, marked by pagan invaders and unfaithfulness and idolatry. Furthermore, during feast time, the likelihood that drunks made their way to the temple was a very possible uh, event. So just imagine the scene. A woman is praying and weeping silently, moving only her lips. So instead of seeing someone who needed shepherding, someone who needed maybe encouragement, Eli naturally assumes that she is drunk. Rather than speaking with Hannah to see if she is drunk, Eli rebukes her without any knowledge. Stop being a drunk, woman. The chief priest of the day, who should have recognized faith quickly, instead misses it entirely in this situation. So notice the contrast with this priest and then the holy Elkanah, who despite being a nobody from nowhere, was a righteous man. So despite this tactless accusation, Hannah's reply was seasoned with grace. Remember the meaning of the word Hannah. It seems that all her actions were carefully considered from a heart of faith. And so she stops and she tells Eli all her troubles. And in the Hebrew, Hannah uses a play on words in response to Eli. Instead of being full of poured wine, she was pouring out anguish and grief. She was full of grief not wine. And in explaining her grief, she called on Yahweh. She used God's covenant name, the covenant name for the Lord, again showing piety. And so I think after realizing that he has made an error, Eli makes a complete 180 in this situation. Now, instead of rebuking her, her, he's suddenly ready to pronounce a blessing on her. He seems to have really been stunned by her sincerity and her faith. So he pronounces shalom on her and prayed that God would grant her her request. But also notice that the high priest did not use the name Yahweh, but simply God. It is the wife of Elkanah, a nobody from nowhere, he used more priestly language. But nonetheless, Hannah's spirit was renewed and her hope returned. And it seems that her contentment came to her even before she knew for certain whether or not her plea would be answered. Pleading before God and the blessing of the priest, that was enough for her to give her peace. And so life went back to normal. Hannah was content that the problem was now in God's hands. And during the normal course of life, God remembered Hannah. 
And notice that when God remembers something, he is doing something about it. Remembering is much more than just calling it to mind. God taught Hannah through her trial, and in his timing, he then answered her prayer. And so Hannah named the child Samuel. And once again, we see the significance that names carried in Hebrew culture. Samuel means heard of God. The Lord is the one who gives life and answers prayer. So from this section, there are a couple things that we should stop and take note of before moving on. First, both Elkanah and Hannah are models of faith. Elkanah was clearly a righteous man who loved the Lord. His regularity in going to Shiloh for worship and ensuring that his family not only came, but also had the means to worship is clear. Hannah's faith is shown in taking her grief to God. Furthermore, in her oath, we see a model of how to pray. Because everything about her prayer was to bring God glory in the end, not herself. If our requests fail to bring praise to God, then we should not be asking for those things. Well, second, in Hannah, we see a picture of the state of Israel at this time. This was a dark time in Israel's history. It was full of sin, of violence, of idolatry, and even defeat at the enemies of Israel. Israel was in a state of spiritual barrenness, just as Hannah was physically barren. But as dark as things were, there was always hope for those who trust in the Lord. The Lord is a source of life, and he can create it in places where it should be impossible. So we can follow the examples of faith we see in Hannah and in Elkanah. But more importantly, we can trust that God remembers his church and will continue to create life in it, even in the most unexpected times and ways. He can regenerate the most unlikely people and call them to himself. Dying churches can be turned around and brought back to thriving places of worship. Your own hearts can be renewed and revived by the truth and turned back to God. He's the author of life, and so we can and should pray that he would bring life to his church. So how should we respond to that faithfulness of God? When he remembers our prayers and when he moves in power, what do we then do in response? Well, the only answer is worship. So the second and final point is that Yahweh is worthy of our worship. So the story progresses to the next year when it was once again time to go up to Shiloh for worship. But Hannah decided not to go until she had weaned Samuel. And weaning children in the ancient Near East normally took place much later than it does now, often not till the child was three. And so it's likely that Hannah actually stayed home during this trip to Shiloh for a few years before weaning Samuel. But during that time, her intention of devoting Samuel to the Lord forever did not change. As soon as, she, as soon as he was weaned, she planned to fulfill her vow. Now, we're not given any indication if Elkanah knew about her vow before this or not. But regardless of what he knew of her vow, he was clearly in support of it. Back in Numbers 30, which uh, we'll look at on a Wednesday night eventually, it, it gives laws about how to handle vows. And a husband actually has the right to approve or annul a wife's vow in the Old Testament. So if Elkanah did not want this son, Samuel, to be given forever to the Lord, all he had to do was annul this vow. Numbers even says that if a vow is annulled, then the wife will be forgiven by the Lord. So it was not a danger to Hannah or Elkanah to cancel this vow. But instead, 
Elkanah gave his blessing on the vow. Once again, again, showing his own faith. He says, may Yahweh establish his word. In other words, beyond just approving of this vow, he asked God's blessing on this vow. So when the time came, Hannah went up to Shiloh with Samuel and a very generous offering with her. And it was common when fulfilling a vow at the temple to offer a sacrifice. But Hannah went above and beyond what she was required to bring. And I think in that we see her gratitude and her joy that the Lord was willing to give her so much. Then we see Hannah bring Samuel and present him to Eli. So the one who offered his blessing on Hannah is the same one who sees and receives God's answer in Samuel. And so the boy was given to the service of the Lord for the rest of his life. He was set apart for the ministry of God forever. So Hannah's problem has now been fully resolved and her oath to Yahweh fulfilled. And as a result of God's goodness to Hannah, she worshipped. But there's also someone else worshipping at the end of verse 28. It says, he worships. So who is the he? The only options are Eli, Samuel, or Elkanah. Eli is completely passive in this section. And as we continue in 1 Samuel, we'll see that he is presented as a huge failure as a priest. So it's very unlikely that he is the one being referenced. Samuel is technically a possibility, but at this point he was probably three to four years old. The most likely answer is actually that Elkanah is the one here worshiping. While he's not explicitly mentioned with Hannah, every time they went up to the yearly worship service, the yearly feast, he was the one leading his family. So he was present regardless. And furthermore, the whole story began with Elkanah and his worship of Yahweh of hosts at Shiloh. So how fitting that the narrative section of this story starts and ends with Elkanah worshiping God. Elkanah not only approved of Hannah's vow of faith, but worshiped the Lord as a result of its fulfillment. But we don't have Elkanah's words written down for us, but the words of Hannah are recorded for us. So often this section is called the Song of Hannah, but it's actually a prayer. And this prayer may seem like an odd break from the narrative of the section, but it is the only proper response to what has just occurred in the lives of Hannah and Elkanah. God is worthy of our worship at all times and in every way. But when we see him moving and creating life where there was none before, we were even more called to praise him. So the works of God, they must drive us to praise, just as it drove Hannah to this prayer. And Hannah begins the prayer with personal statements in verse 1. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She has seen the glory of the Lord and she personally rejoices in it. Then she transitions to speak about who God is. God is holy, unique, and he is the only foundation. He's also the judge of all mankind and the mighty conqueror who destroys the wicked. God makes the proud humble and he lifts up the poor in spirit. He's the one who gives health, wealth, and life and the one who can even take it all away. God protects his people and teaches them how to walk by faith. He also sets up and he glorifies his king. Hannah's prayer actually serves as an introduction and a theme section for the rest of 1st and 2nd Samuel. 
And this section also acts as a theme for the rest of the history of Israel. And there are several themes contained in here. Now, we've mentioned several already, but here are a couple more themes. First, just as Hannah's barrenness was healed and she was given a child, so Israel's barrenness is about to be healed. God was beginning a work in Israel to bring new life and vitality to a faltering and a failing people. And Samuel is going to be a key figure in that plan. Second, God was going to raise up a king specifically to save his people. Hannah knew the promises of Scripture. She knew that God would one day raise up a king to rescue his people. And if you look at the end of verse 10, you can see that. And in the book of 1 Samuel, God shows us what the type of king that Israel needed was. In the coming chapters, Israel's going to look at King Saul and they're going to say, now that is a king. But Saul's going to fail because he won't follow God or love him. Instead, David will be the type of king that Israel needs, a man truly after God's own heart. But even the great King David is going to fall into sin multiple times, and the end of his reign is going to be marked much more by failure and weakness than by success or faithfulness. So Hannah's prayer really points us forward to a time when the true king, of which David was only a foreshadow, would come. Samuel was just the next step in God's plan towards fulfilling his promises to his people. So who is the true promised king? I'm sure most of you know the answer to this. The answer is that the only true king is Jesus Christ. He is the true king who judges nations and who has been exalted above all things so that he might be preeminent. The promise of which Hannah and Elkanah played a part did not come to complete fruition until Christ came in the incarnation. And also in Hannah's prayer, we see a precursor and a shadow to another prayer. Forward in Luke chapter 1. So turn over to Luke 1. Luke 1, and we'll look at verses 46 through 55. So Luke 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So do you see those similar themes being repeated in that prayer? Even the structure of Mary's song is very similar to Hannah's prayer. And Mary will have had, may well have had Hannah's prayer in mind when she spoke these words in Luke 1. God's actions led Mary to the praise and the worship of the Lord. Because once again, God took a woman who was low and humble and incapable of bearing a child and created life where there was no possibility otherwise. And much like Hannah's prayer, salvation for God's people 
hand in hand with judgment on the wicked. So Christ brings both salvation to the church and judgment on the nations. All of God's promises to his people were fulfilled in the sending of Jesus in the incarnation. Barren Israel is truly saved through life in Christ. So in verse 11, we come to the end of the story. And it ends in the same way in which it began. Elkanah returns home to Ramah. And so a long inclusio is wrapped up. And Samuel remained at the temple and ministered to Yahweh in Eli's presence. And really all that means is Eli, or is Samuel is now apprenticing under Eli. Hannah and Elkanah, they have fulfilled their role in the story, and now they mostly disappear into the background. And now the story of 1 Samuel will turn to focus on Eli, which in turn sets the stage for what Samuel's role is going to be moving forward in this book. And so now that we've finished this entire passage, we need to answer a question. Who is the main character in this story? Hannah is the one who was barren and took it to God, was blessed with a child, and then fulfilled her vow to the Lord. Elkanah is the one who starts, continues in, and ends with worship in this passage. And he's also one who upholds his wife's vow. Now, neither Eli nor Samuel play a big enough role to be a main character in this section. So who is the main focus of this passage? Who is the one at work in all of these things, truly bringing the story forward? Well, Yahweh is the one who moved Elkanah to worship. He is the one who allowed Hannah to be barren in the first place so that he might display his power through her by giving her a son. Samuel is the one God raised up to be the leader and judge his people. The Lord is the one who raised up a nobody from nowhere to bear a great leader. And it was that leader that God would utilize to move forward his plan of redemption for his church. And that grand plan came into fruition in and centered upon the work of Christ. And really just notice how everything in this story revolves around and is anchored to one thing, and that is the worship of God. It began and it ended with Elkanah worshiping. Hannah's problem is what drove her to worship through her petition and provided the catalyst for God to create life in Israel again. How do we connect all that to our situation? Are you starting and ending your lives with worship? Our entire lives must be characterized and consumed by the overwhelming praise of God in our lives. Do you take your burdens and requests to God, as Hannah did? Believe it or not, that's a form of worship. Our lives, if our lives are not characterized by the worship of Jesus, and we are not truly believers or we are walking just like the world. So do you pour out your whole life to God and praise him for shepherding you? That is your highest calling in this life. But maybe right now your faith is dry and stagnating. Or maybe you cannot see past the trials that God has called you to endure. When your head is barely staying above the water, it can be difficult to see the larger picture. At any time and in any moment, God can create life and produce faith where there was none before. So ask yourself this question and answer it honestly. Are you struggling? Don't fill up on the world. Don't try to fix the problem yourself. Rather, empty out your heart before God. 
He will always remember his children, and your struggles are actually precious in his sight. And through them, he's remaking you into the image of Christ. Well, how about the church as a whole? Can the church be barren and struggle at times? I think you know the answer to this is absolutely it can. The life of the church, it ebbs and flows through time, and we always need to be called back to faithfulness. Persecution can also seem or make it seem as though the church is failing at times. And in those times, do we corporately, together, believe that God can do what he has promised? Christ is the shepherd of his church. So do we actually believe that, or do we think it is up to us to guard and protect and grow the church? The church must be challenged continually to hold fast to Christ in every situation. So then the next question, how do we do that? We recognize who our God is, and we gather for worship because of it. The God who is sovereign, who is our creator, who is the true shepherd, who is holy, who is good, he is the one who gives us life and faith. And if God has so worked in your heart, do not remain silent. Do not remain inactive. As Hannah put it in her prayer in chapter 2, verse 2, There is none holy like Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are our rock and our Savior, our protector and our Father. That you invite us to bring our concerns and our our struggles to you. You don't tell us to go to the world. You don't tell us to, to clean ourselves up and figure it out, and then you'll accept us. Father, you tell us and you encourage us to bring our concerns and our burdens and our struggles to you, to carry them to the very throne of God where we can set them down and lay them at your feet. And in doing so, you make us more into the image of Christ than we could ever attempt to do on our own. So, Father, teach us that humility. Teach us to know the greatness of your providence in our lives, that through everything you've carried us through and led us through, you are molding us. You are calling us to faith in Christ. So, Father, continue to do that in our hearts. And if any of us here do not know that, if any of us here do not know the Lord, Lord, use those situations in our lives, those difficult things, those things that we are barely holding on in, and use that to lead us to the one who can take that burden from our shoulders, to the one who can fulfill us in every way through worship, and the one who not only calls us to worship now because of your faithfulness, but who is sculpting us, and preparing us to worship in eternity in glory. A worship that will never be less than perfect. A worship that will never not completely enthrall and captivate our souls. Lord, point us forward, build us up, and increase our faith. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.